0: reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. This is Brandon Kelly, the host of Blue Wire's new podcast, Golden Gold. Messi
1: takes everybody up. Messi has got it!
0: From Lionel Messi to Marta to Pele, our show takes a deep dive into soccer superstars. 2 Golden Goal Soccer Stars and the Moments That Made Them. Premiering this summer on Blue Wire.
2: What is up, Hardwood Knox listeners? I am Dan Favalli coming at you with Adam Frommel. We are here to continue. Our decade ranking series, we are up to the Minnesota Timberwolves, so we hope you're excited because we're nearing the two-thirds point, which is exciting for us. So we're going to go through the Timberwolves, but first, our usual housekeeping notes. Please, 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 pretty please continue rating, reviewing, and subscribing to us wherever you consume your podcasts. Regardless of that, though, we do ask that you head over to iTunes, throw us a five-star rating, write a review, if you please, so that we know that you rated us. Or if you have any feedback, suggestions, jokes, I'm always there for for a good joke. We're reading them, and we've seen the numbers go up lately, so I guess my begging has worked. And so I'm just going to continue begging. If you haven't done that, please do. If you have done all those things, word of mouth really helps us out as well. Retweet our promos on Twitter. uh, Shout us out. You can tell friends, family members, random Hoops fans you're meeting on social media about us. They'll thank you later, maybe, possibly. Uh, we appreciate all of it. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Follow our YouTube channel as well. Go to YouTube.com, search Hardwood Knox, Hit subscribe and, and like all our videos, particularly the Decade Ranking Series, which is these episodes are, are going up whenever we record them. Last, but certainly not least, shout out to our sponsor, as always, Online. Ag for making this podcast possible. You'll be hearing from them in just a few moments. Now, I must ask the founder and editor-in-chief of MBA Math and editor for Bleacher Report, Adam Frommel, how are you doing?
1: I'm doing pretty well, but in, instead of going off on some random tangent like I normally do when you ask me that, I'm going to turn it around and ask you how you're doing because I feel like no one ever asks you that.
2: Uh, I guess I've never really realized that our, our guests asked me that. So maybe you're just rude. That's probably the case, but I'm doing well. I'm just tired, which is my, my default state. And I've started to notice that I have the way this works really quickly is my wife and I split the puppies. She's able to take one since she owns her own business to work with her. And then I'll keep the other one. They're getting like more restless during the podcast. We had the random bark on a previous episode with Christian Winfield, uh, from the New York Daily News and it was just one bark but it was just ran- all of a sudden just barked during it and then one of the other episodes I think you and I were doing the bucks and Wade just kept like jumping on me and he was in my lap for half the episode and so I missed the days where they were just sleeping through these entire episodes
1: I, I, you just need to get Ang to take both of them
2: that's what I think and that's right Aang that's her name not even uh, that's not a nickname that's not a mispronunciation her actual name is Aang no it's not Should Um, we tell
1: the story behind that?
2: I think you should tell the story.
1: Yeah, I I think um, if I remember correctly, you and and her had been dating for for years and years, and I had only seen her referred to in texts as A-N-G. So her name is Angela, but for years, I operated under the assumption that her name was just Aang. That's how it was in my head, and and that's how it still is.
2: What's great about it, too, is I only found out because you pronounced it like that when you... I think we might have been podcasting, or we were on a video call for Bleach Report, and you asked how Aang was doing, and I was like, excuse me? It's your fault. Good times. That's a that was a nice little uh, fluff piece ahead of the the Minnesota Timberwolves rankings. Are you able to before we get to number ten, just provide us with the usual overview of how this works for our first time listeners?
1: Absolutely. So as always, we have turned to you, the listeners, the fans, for your input on these rankings uh, with the the polls that are out on the NBA Math Twitter account. We're asking you for the top ten in this case, Minnesota Timberwolves of the last decade, which dates back to 2010-11, however you choose to define that term, importance to the franchise, uh, on-court success, contributions towards winning, whatever it may be. So we have three components of our composite ratings, the fan vote, my ballot, and Dan's ballot, and we have grouped those together to come up with our composite top 10. Uh, We did have 12 different people included on one of the three components this time around. So a brief shout out to Derek Rose, who checked in at number 10 on the fan ballot and uh, did not make the cut for either myself or Dan, and Nemanja Bielitsa, uh who was 10th for both me and Dan, but missed the cut by quite a bit on the fan vote, I believe. Yeah, all the way down at a, at a in a tie for 27th. Only one other person had Bielitsa on a ballot. But the actual number 10 in our composite rankings is Luke Ridnour who would be uh i i feel like that's a great way to start this uh this particular set of rankings because you know n- no disrespect meant to uh to the Minnesota Timberwolves fans or anything but it's it's been a fairly forgettable decade only uh only one playoff appearance in the last 10 years that 2017-18 season where they lost in the first round and the rest has uh not gone so well. I think that's probably the nicest way we can put it. So yeah, Luke Ridnour to kick it off.
2: It also feels pretty typical that he is carried in these rankings by you and you only, by I... me and me only. Yeah, Dan didn't have him. I had him. Uh, I had him at eighth in my
1: rankings. The fans had him in a tie with Anthony Tolliver for 18th, and I have no regrets there because you know, as as forgettable as it may have been, he he spent three years in Minnesota, which for this decade with as much lack of continuity as there's been is That that puts him seventh in minutes played. He was a a consistently solid offensive player, never anything special. And, you know, I have somewhat of a personal attachment, I guess, because he went to the same high school as my wife.
2: That is, you talk about a connection. I think you put it fine. Consistently solid shot fairly well from three in his time in uh, Minnesota, 35.9% of a fair weather game manager. I would call him as, as a playmaker uh, it, I think it must, it has to be remembered though, that the Timberwolves are basically one of the teams I feel like kicked off the Luke Rittenauer trade Fiesta where they traded him in 2013. And then a year later he was traded like 80 times in the, in the same off season. It was really only, it was really only twice at that point or no, it was like for 2015 where he was traded in the same off season. One, two, three, four, four, Five uh, no, four times he was traded in the two thousand fifteen offseason. So the Timberwolves got it started though in July two thousand thirteen when they when they sent him to the to the Milwaukee Bucks. That wasn't the first time he was traded, but if you look at his transaction history, that's talk about a tangent, but you just need
1: to set aside an hour to actually look at that transaction history.
2: Right. In 2013 it seemed like the he was traded in at least once in every single year that, thereafter. <laughs> so that's just that's just kind of funny. Uh, who checked in? I don't think there's a qualms. I actually I regret a little bit not putting him in the top 10, but this was, you know, we made, you made the joke at the top, but this was also just kind of a tough uh, group to parse once you got past like the top five. And then even the order, I don't even know, I, I, I would say number one was probably pretty close to consensus, but there might've at least been a debate, but everything after the top two, you could really have these genuine debates over.
1: Right. Not a lot of people have spent that much time in Minnesota over the last decade, there haven't been many stars. Um, yeah, it, it was. There were a lot of options. There just weren't a lot of good options. Uh, they which, are one
2: of the fan bases where you look at their uh, playoff drought, where it's you have only one playoff berth since uh, the 2004 postseason. And that was, as you said, it was the 2018 playoffs. Their fan base, I feel for, and it's not. I want all fan bases to to be fulfilled by their teams, but like Timberwolves fans they feel like like they deserve your, your empathy here because they're not, as far as fan bases go, they're just not really like these, um, a snotty fan base and where they're going to get abrasive about the situation that they're in. And then also you just look at some of the teams they've had, those Kevin Love teams that looked like they were going to be really good. You trade for a star like Jimmy Butler and all of a sudden you have this top 10 player. And so you think that's a turning point. Uh, we know about the uh, David Kahn a certain draft decision that might've ended up hurting them. And so there I feel genuinely bad for them because it seems like their team has had all these opportunities um, to be more consistent when it comes to contending for the playoffs over the past 15 plus years. And yet it either just hasn't worked out their way or they've consistently made the the wrong decision.
1: Yeah, I I, am very much with you there. I I feel like I have not had any negative interactions with Timberwolves fans on Twitter or, or any social media platform. And that is not for a lack of criticism because there's been a lot of
2: low-hanging fruit over the years. Right. And so I, I applaud the way that they handle the criticism. And then the interactions I've had, they really do know their basketball too. And so that, that gives them license to yell at us on Twitter about how off we are in these rankings. But at least there wasn't variance in the top 10. Like you said, there were 12 different players in the top 10. So at least we were in semi-lockstep in the aggregate there. But can you take us to number nine?
1: I can. And, and he is the the final player who did not appear on all three components. And that's thanks to me, barely leaving him off in favor of Bielitsa. Uh, but it is Kevin Martin who checked in at number nine for the fans and who you had up at number seven. He only spent two and a half seasons in his 30s with the Timberwolves. It was after he had had his best years with the Kings and, and the Rockets and spent one brief season in Oklahoma City. You know, a good score, funky jump shooting form, nothing much to add on defense. Um, and, you know, I, I feel like he was kind of the, the empty calories scorer of the decade for the Timberwolves, which I get why that's enough to put him here, even if uh, it, it wasn't quite enough to tip the scales in his favor
2: for my ballot. Empty calories feels like a stark criticism. 17.1 points per game in Minnesota on 38.6% shooting from three. Definitely not the most accurate two-point shooter. Uh, you talked about his jump shooting form, and yeah, I guess he's never the face of a really good team as a scorer, but that seems more about him being miscast where we... Uh, we well, I do- don't
1: think it was empty calories earlier in his career, but in Minnesota, he made a bad team worse when he was on the court, or at least stagnate. Like It wasn't like he was
2: doing that much to add value. If you can shoot, average 17 points a game across two and a half different seasons on 38% shooting from 3 I'm I'm going to question whether that's truly empty calories. Maybe that's a fair criticism, but I'm I'm still a little bit shocked uh, that you would put him or you would leave him off instead of Bielita. What is the case for Bielita over Kevin Martin?
1: Uh I was not prepared to answer that question. <laughs> um it was more just I I gave, I gave Bielitsa a little bit more credit because he he played more than a bit role on better teams. You know, I, I don't know that there's an argument to be made that he provided more individual value than Kevin Martin during their similarly brief times with Minnesota, but I do think that his acceptance of a smaller role and ability to come in and make a positive impact on a team that actually did go to the playoffs and was in contention for those postseason spots while he was there deserved a
2: little bit more credit. Not unfair, but uh, look, 41 Minnesota team in 2013-2014, Kevin Martin's the the second leading scorer. That, I think you can say, is close to a fringe playoff team, and so I just I just question the empty calories categorization of it. But
1: That might have been a bit hyperbolic, but I'm going to stick with it because I said it already.
2: <laughs> Fair enough,
1: and you take us to, to number eight. I can. That is uh, Zach Levine, who was number seven for the fans. He was number nine for me. He was number eight for you. So we're all at least in a similar range there. Um, I, I, I almost feel like it's hard to separate the Minnesota version – of Zach Levine from the Bulls version, which probably favors him because he did go through a rough rookie season in 2014-15 and then gradually improved to the point that he was a valued trade commodity um, and, and moved in that Jimmy Butler deal. But he wasn't always a consistent three-point shooter. Um, he was definitely more of an athlete playing basketball than a basketball player, early in his career with the Wolves, but I mean, it it always seemed to me, at least like the breakout was coming. I I feel like I was always really high on his
2: potential. For this shot, he was a good shooter in Minnesota. So there's no question about that. But for the types of shots that he would take, it feels like his efficiency should have been so much lower. And I would have been interested to see, maybe it never happens because the Timberwolves haven't had the steadiest coaching nor has Chicago for that matter but what if he never suffers that ACL injury what if he's never traded away for Minnesota what does he end up turning into but he's he's a very good offensive player and uh the fact that he was still a good shooter or always was a good shooter but then like you know he's shooting 48% on twos I know a good amount of his looks came at the rim but he was still taking these kind of um for at least part of his time there, these, these junky jump shots. And I'm almost impressed that he had an effective field goal percentage over 50 during his time in Minnesota. And again, I know you're looking at the number of assisted looks, it's going to be way higher in Minnesota um, than it is in in Chicago right now. And like you said, maybe that kind of blurs the lines because we're so there's the recency bias there, but I kind of respect where his efficiency landed at for the types of shots that he was taking outside of those uh, assisted threes in many.
1: I almost feel like Minnesota didn't know how to use him, and it both hurt him and helped him, because it, it felt like his whole tenure with the Wolves was spent bouncing between guard positions. They couldn't decide if he was better as a catch and shoot guy, or if they wanted to to force him to develop some point guard skills. And you know, playing alongside uh, alongside Ricky Rubio, they it didn't. They they just didn't have any sort of consistency for him. It probably held him back during the three seasons in Minnesota. I also feel like it's helped him uh, become an offensive star with the Chicago Bulls because he is comfortable in both of those roles. So the growing pains that he went through in Minnesota, I think, depressed his standing on our rankings, but also helped him become the player he is today.
2: Sports are coming back, and so are your chances to bet on your favorite teams and events. And there's no better place to start than our exclusive partner, Bet Online. Get in on the action for this week's big UFC fight, or check out odds on NASCAR, Formula One, and the Premier League. Can't wait for your team to come back? BetOnline has futures odds, including win totals, division winners, and even league championships. Or check out daily simulations of Madden and NBA 2K to watch and wager on. Visit betonline.ag and use promo code BLUEWIRE to receive your new welcome bonus. That's promo code BLUEWIRE, all one word. BetOnline, your online wagering experts.
1: Moving on to seven. I'm ready. Number seven, Nikola Pekovic, which is a name that if you haven't thought about in a while, you should change that because he was super fun Uh, He was number six for both the fans and me. He was down at number nine for you. Never healthy, but just talk about just like this paint-bound behemoth who could push around everyone and just capitalize on maybe the the strongest body and game in the NBA during his time in
2: Minnesota. You could definitely do pull-ups on his arms. That's how he was built. I really hope that you're saying that from personal experience. I wish. Um, th- my thing with him and I, he was a good player when he was healthy, but if you're looking at his two best seasons, so 2012, 2013, then 2013, 2014, he's still missing like almost a third of the team's games during that time. And so the never healthy factor really kind of weighted, uh, for me, which is why I ended up having him at number, uh, where did I put him? number nine, number nine. In- instead of really any higher, I I totally see the case to put him higher and just this really big body and and a good offensive player. And while he wasn't, you know, someone who was uh, going to to really just space the floor for you, he had like the in-between range, which could really help out uh, at that position for the era. And then it doesn't really matter as much when Kevin Love is your, is your four. So, I, I was, the numbers he put up, they're just, they're absolutely absurd. Even if you just look at his, even when he was kind of going through his rougher season, his, his per minute production, just his, his rookie season until his penultimate season in the league. So 2014, 2015, 18.3 points, 9.8 rebounds per 36 minutes, shooting 52.1% on twos, which again, when you, when you have a little bit of range or you're taking in, these in between shots, that's a, a pretty good number. So and again, his peak was just really good. I just have a trouble reconciling how unavailable he was for them routinely. Yeah, yeah. not just over a couple seasons, but routinely.
1: Yeah, I mean, in August 2013, he signed that five-year, sixty-million-dollar deal, and it seemed like a good value. Like it, it seemed like that was a justifiable number for a guy who who fit the style of that era, who who fit well alongside Kevin Love, who overpowered opponents on a nightly basis and then the ankles just betrayed him. You know, that that chronic ankle and Achilles pain that completely wrecked his career. And it's not like, you know, he played 12 games in 2015, 16. And it's not like he has since gone on and played in an in a different league across uh, over overseas or anything like that. He's just his basketball career was kaput after that. And it's a shame because, you know, as you helped highlight with those numbers, like he was he was really good. Um, uh, in his
2: late twenties before those injuries struck. And I would just imagine that it's probably hard to recover from these serious foot issues with a body like his almost seven feet tall. And then he's listed on basketball references, 307 pounds. And so even if you, you'll know, give or take 20 pounds there, you're still just carrying around a, a lot of, of weight there and force with which you're just running up and down the court on. The other thing I
1: always think of when I hear Pekovic's name, and again, it, it's probably been a while since I feel like we've we've largely forgotten about him until we do those these retrospectives. You remember when we uh, when we did all the the league wide redrafts at Bleacher Report back in the day, where we would draft the NBA from scratch. Yes, I do. I don't remember what year it was, but I was I was running it. From uh, from a family vacation at, in Hilton Head, South Carolina, and we were in like the seventh round, and someone I think it might have been Grant Hughes, another another Hardwood Knox friend, um, who pointed out that Pekovic wasn't listed uh, among the available players to choose from, and so we had to have like the Pekovic, and then Andre Kirilenko was also left off corollary, and like give these the ability to like pick him and then forfeit a later pick or something to make it fair. I just, I, I always think about like how I totally messed up that process whenever I hear his name.
2: So you're giving him a sympathy bump in these rankings is what you're saying. We can go with that. Fair enough. I, I don't think my,
1: my sympathy bump would, would dislodge
2: him much, but do you have something against players that at one point played for the Timberwolves? Because Andre Karolinko as well, he had a season in Minnesota.
1: And he did get a, enough votes to uh, to show up in our honorable mentions, as we'll get to at the end of this episode. Before honorable mentions, though, can you take us to number six? Number six is Jimmy Butler, um, who was number seven for me, number six for you, number five for the fans. I was surprised that the fans were the highest on Jimmy Butler, considering how his, his brief time with the franchise ended. I mean, the, the phenomenal... season where you know he continued to establish himself as an absolute star capable of leading just about any team to the playoffs but then the trade requests and you know Tom Thibodeau not moving him and then playing 10 games and then the ridiculous series at a at a at a practice which I guess I'll let you elaborate on because I think you've uh, thought about that more recently than me (laughs)
2: What's real so I think you hit it on the head when you said Tom Thibodeau didn't trade him and that's where the the anger needs to be directed at because Jimmy Butler requested out after the first round loss to the Rockets and Thibodeau I guess tried to call his bluff and then even after it became more public they let it was longer than 10 games into the season but he made 10 appearances for the Timberwolves still before being a traded to the Sixers it was a farce but it was more so a farce from Tom Thibodeau than I think Jimmy Butler, and I still think the the optics of him his tour de force, which is still just one of my favorite phrases to come out of NBA reporting of of all time, having that practice and then being interviewed by Rachel Nichols immediately thereafter, where it all seemed really scripted. And he look, he said that that oh, interview it
1: more than seemed
2: scripted. Well, the th- he said it was set up weeks in advance, but I like the optics there are just so. And we're not used to that. We're used to these anonymous sources. We're used to players deny, deny, deny. And he's just out there. He didn't really... I don't don't think he ever really said it directly, but he was basically just like, there's no salvaging this. It just can't happen. It's just what I remember. And maybe Wolves fans appreciated his candor, but look, he also led them to the playoffs that year. And it's the only playoff burst they have since their 2014 postseason. And the other thing is that team was almost entirely on his back so we can agree on that but they were contending uh before he suffered his injury for, for the three seed in the west i believe like like they were really right there and so that like i wonder if he never has that uh, or needs that it's a, I don't, i'm not saying that he shouldn't have had it but has the right knee surgery to repair a meniscus injury in i think it was february 2018 or around then what becomes of that team yeah are they i don't know if they stay together still because i'm i'm not sure unless he really believed in Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins i'm still not sure they had this clear path to to really being a, a long time western conference contender but they could have like you could finish the season on a lot better vibes than than they actually did and so mm. uh, and the fact that he still came back for the playoffs you know having the surgery at the end of i just looked it up uh in february and then being back less than two months later for for the playoffs. That's something that they might also respect. I'm really not trying to speak on behalf of Wolves fans here. I'm, I just have him so high for these reasons, basically, that I think you're willing to overlook the messiness of the departure, not only just because of the the success, and it, which has been a rarity at this level for the Timberwolves for so long, but because it wasn't just him in this scenario. There was a ton of people to blame and mostly just Tom Thibodeau.
1: I initially had Butler lower in my rankings because of the manner in which he exited and the the potential negative effects that it had on the franchise. But then as I thought about it more and looked at the the trade package that they got back for him, I, I moved him back up. Just I, they, they still managed to get, they traded him and Justin Patton to the Philadelphia 76ers for Jared Bayless, Robert Covington, Dario Saric, and a, a 2022 second round draft pick. That's a pretty decent return for a disgruntled star who had just turned 29 and was on an expiring deal cuz he was going to hit free agency in 2019 anyway, which is when he signed the deal with the Philadelphia with the Philadelphia 76ers. So that that was still a a decent return and was not grounds for moving him down like it could have been if they'd gotten nothing back.
2: Right. I but what happens if you move him more when the trade demand is more discreet over the off season, it feels like there'd been more suitors. Maybe you would have been able to get get a first round pick at least actually did for him. So while the hall, I think in retrospect was, I mean, looking at what Dario Sarge has become in Phoenix, maybe it it doesn't look so great, but, and look also relative to what they gave up. uh, I guess that depends on how you feel about Chris Dunn, who was a defensive monster this year before he got injured. Zach Levine, who's a borderline top 50 player on the back of his offense alone. And then Larry market in, who really seems like his growth has been stunted due to injury? Maybe the offense he's playing in, and then perhaps he's just not as dynamic on that end as people expected. But you gave up a, a ton to get him too, so the return doesn't really feel commensurate uh, with that. Particularly if you look at the trade tree at this point, because of what you have, you know, now you have Jarrett Culver instead of Dario Saric, and these are just rough outlines here. You ended up traded. Uh, you ended up trading Robert Covington, and so that was like a fairly Nice return, but when you start to branch off like what they started with compared to what they have now, it, it really it doesn't look all that great. And so, but I, I do wonder could you have gotten more from a different team, maybe, that didn't view Butler as so much of a risk or no, he was openly disgruntled had you moved him over the offseason when he initially requested it. Probably so.
1: Probably so. And either way, we're still talking about a guy who was twenty-fourth in minutes played for the decade and still was an obvious inclusion on all the top 10s. I I think that says a lot in and of itself.
2: What happens if he finishes the 2017-2018 in Minnesota? Let's say none of this drama happens. He plays out the season, then leaves in free agency. Maybe it's still a sign-and-trade with the Heat, whatever. How far up this list does he go if the Timberwolves make another playoff berth? Probably
1: third or fourth. That's high. Just Assuming he plays... I mean, we're basically putting him... You know, you had him at at sixth on the back of one season.
2: And look, when you look at the names that are coming up anyway, as I'll ask you to take us to to number five, it it could really make some... He definitely gets to at least number four. And I'd probably say there'd be a strong case for him. So you're absolutely right. It sounds ridiculous, but it it really wouldn't be.
1: Yeah, again, like with the names that are coming, like Gorgie Jang at number five, who I, I think is the first true beneficiary of the fairness factor. For this franchise in these rankings. He's he's number four in minutes played for the decade, 11,026, one of only four people who crested 10,000, one of only four people who was above 8,200. Um, there has not been a lot of, of lengthy tenures um, for this this last decade. But Jang was more than just there. He was a, a, a consistently solid Um, surprisingly versatile defender. He was a good mid-range shooter who forced defenses to at least pay attention to him out to to 20-ish feet. Uh, He never uh, never really pushed the boundaries of what he could do, probably both for better and for worse. And I think there's value in that. There's,
2: I don't think playing with Tom Thibodeau helped him too much either. Especially because
1: of the devotion to Taj Gibson.
2: Right. So you signed, I don't know why if I still don't understand why that front office, because it was the Thibodeau front office that signed him to the extension in 2016, I believe. So I don't understand the logic. There it was just all kind of messed up. But like you said, he could hit long twos when he was at his best. And he always had a little bit more switch to him on defense than I think people realize. And so never this spectacular player, but he, he was just rock solid for a lot of the time. And, uh, you know, I I think had he taken threes earlier, maybe there's more value here because you know, he took them uh, this season. Actually, he's shooting 35.9% from three uh, on 5.1 attempts per 36 minutes. Time split between the the Timberwolves and and the Memphis Grizzlies. And look, before he was traded to Memphis, uh, he was shooting 38.3% on threes for Minnesota. And so he was having just another good year and that quietly should help him in these rankings because yes, there's a longevity factor, um, but you just look at his numbers um, or his role this season. He felt a little bit more important after two seasons of, of wallowing in relative obscurity. And I know his minutes per game uh, definitely don't reflect this as much, but he's still playing more than he has over those past, pe- he was still playing more, excuse me, than he uh, than he did during the past two seasons. And if you have that big who can now move on defense at least, uh, and then also space the floor for you on offense, there's just going to be in- inherent value there. And I think he's he's average at a lot of what you need from the position right now. And I, I think that, that ends up being a really good thing. And I'll be interested to see. Uh, it doesn't look like his role in Memphis is going to be Too extensive, but I'll just be interested to see. You know, uh, Gorgie Jang is only 30 years old. Like, this is still someone that does he have, like, sort of the second phase of his career where we could see him bomb uh, a few more threes? Uh, He has another year left on his deal. Again, I don't know that Memphis is going to view him as part of the rotation when you have Jaron Jackson Jr., Clark, Jonas Valanciunas there, but on an expiring deal, I feel like the trade market's going to be pretty. Um, pretty robust this summer because free agency is so bad. I just I wonder if he kind of has a second act. I'm not saying he's going to be worth a big deal when he hits free agency in 2021, but I I think this is a good player who's sort of been just in the wrong situation the past three years. I would say
1: I'm willing to give Tom Thibodeau a lot of credit as a X's and O's coach, as an innovative basketball mind who came up with these pack the paint defense styles that have since propagated throughout the NBA and forced subsequent adjustments. Kudos to him for all of that, but he's always been a terrible manager of a roster. Whether it's playing guys like Luol Deng way too many minutes, same with Joe Kim Noah, probably same with Derrick Rose or just showing too much loyalty to the players that he's always had. You know, we always made the jokes that when he was in Minnesota, they became the Minnesota Bulls because he had to acquire all of his old players. Then he had to keep playing them big minutes. And I think that that Jang was probably one of the biggest misfires of his time in Minnesota. I mean, we're talking about a guy who started every game in 2016-17 and for the second straight season, with his understated contributions, consistently made the team significantly better when he was on the court. And his reward in 2017-18 was getting buried on the bench behind it, who a, a player in, in, in Taj Gibson who was an inferior option, but had that familiarity with Tibbs and had that pre-established relationship with Tibbs, and that came at Jang's expense. And I, I wish that he had have gotten a chance to continue growing during his athletic
2: prime under a coach who actually valued him. And what's even just more curious about the decision is, so Thibodeau, that, that front office signs Jang to... His extension before Thibodeau technically ever coaches the team, but he's there. And so you know he's there. You know that he's on this contract. And then you go ahead and sign Josh Gibson anyway. So, like, that's a year, you know, we're fast forwarding a year. The thing with Tibbs, too, is, and the athletics, Dave Dufour and I had a brief discussion about this a few weeks ago, is that he, the other thing that's, I think, uh, really hurt him is that he hasn't shown that he can adapt. And I've always defaulted to that his offense isn't inventive enough in part because he has that defensive reputation. And I always just kind of assumed that after the experience in Minnesota, when it became clear that those pack the paint schemes, were are going to give up a, a crap ton of threes aren't going to work anymore, that he would adjust, but he really has yet to show that he's willing to do that. And so that's not, not even a fa- in the slightest, that's not a fair assumption to make. And so can you even give him the, I guess if you want to give him the the X's and O's savant label, you can. But then you really have to just factor in how uh, just rigid he is or or, or stubborn because why haven't you changed yet? And so his next coaching stop, maybe it's the Knicks at this point, which will say a lot about the direction they're headed in, that'll be the ultimate litmus test for, hey, is he willing to adjust everything really? And just particularly on defense because what – uh, really helped him build up his reputation isn't working anymore there needs to be you need to have more optionality more wiggle room on defense otherwise uh, you're going to get the results that you did during his time in minnesota where it was they they coughed up way too many threes
1: i can't say i expected to uh to spend this much time on uh on on gorgy jang
2: he's apparently a very polarizing figure good player like i said feels like the the quintessential league average contributor at his position, and I think what's dragged him down just in the larger scope, is that he was in the, in the wrong spot, just clearly, for you know two-plus seasons. At least two-plus seasons. Number four, though. Who do we have there? An even more controversial
1: figure than Gorgie Jang, an even more divisive figure than Gorgie Jang. That is Andrew Wiggins. The fans actually had him up at number three. Uh, You had him at number four. I had him at number five. And I am now willing to retract the empty calories scoring comment about Kevin Martin because if there's anyone that that applies to, it's Andrew Wiggins.
2: Yeah, I do. One of the things about Andrew Wiggins, I feel like I've just dumped all over him for too long that I almost don't want to do it anymore that I've always found fascinating is one, I just wonder how the lack of stability in Minnesota uh, really, really hurt him because he had like 90 different head coaches while he was there. And you're looking at the, the different iterations of the team that makes it difficult just on so many, uh, so many levels for someone who this, just basically this instability started from, from the jump. And so that's when you're most impressionable and, and, I would I would think that that has a major adverse impact on your development. The other thing that I found fascinating is I've never really understood that the more his role was simplified, it's the worse he seemed to get. Where And again, I don't know if it's just because he didn't stick with it or the team didn't stick with it for longer stretches, but when he felt like he was at his worst, even though he had Carmelo Anthony Towns and Jimmy Butler on the roster with him, you would think that someone who's going to take some more catch-and-shoot looks, which he did, during that time that that would actually help him. And it really didn't seem to do that. And I'm I'm fascinated to see if, if he can be a, a better complementary player with the Warriors, because I question whether he can, he might be someone who's just more at home with the ball in his hands, taking those difficult shots. And that's still going to be a problem because he's not hyper efficient in that role either. But it's just, it's, it's an interesting dynamic because what I think should be easier uh, for easier circumstances and better overall in terms of looking at the the probability of success for a player. It does feel like Andrew Wiggins might just be like fall on that weird end of the spectrum.
1: Yeah. I, I, I've, I kind of view him as like a Monte Ellis guy where he is just best with the ball in his hands, scoring a whole lot of points on bad teams and that's okay. There's a, that, that allows you to have a nice long lucrative career and, That's probably what Wiggins is going to have, even if he doesn't evolve whatsoever. He's very obviously a gifted scorer who can make difficult shots to probably too many difficult shots because it gives him confidence to keep taking difficult shots he shouldn't be taking. Um, But until he commits himself to learning the basics on defense, until he commits to being a off-ball energy guy who is willing to to scrap for loose balls, who's willing to try to get rebounds until he develops more passing vision, there's just not going to be that much value there.
2: Um, Kudos to him for, and whether it it, it seems like this is more incidental than, than deliberate, but there's always just some form of hope ascribed to him. We're talking about Andrew Wiggins, uh, the Warrior season is done. So he has now played six years in the NBA, and he's... 25 which is still relatively young but after six years there's still people holding out hope that he could be no not the megastar that he was perhaps unfairly billed as coming out of kansas but i his his game just seems to engender hope and even this season at the beginning oh the minnesota timbers are going to have him run a bunch of pick and rolls his passing is getting better he looks like a more efficient player and then it kind of tapers off there's just the andrew wiggins experience is just so painfully unique and it it it's it's magnetic i can't it's almost like i can't look away from it or can't stop talking about him once you get on the topic and i'm so very interested to see what ends up happening in in golden state next year assuming he isn't traded as part of some larger deal
1: and that that interest is only magnified too because of the prolific nature of his scoring ability i mean he's been given the opportunities to be a twenty-point-per-game scorer consistently since the start of his career, and he has willingly taken those shots again for better and for worse. Um, and and as you mentioned, he he just finished his his age, or he he is twenty-five now. So he just finished his age twenty-four season. Now that the Warriors' year is officially over, as you mentioned, which leads me to my trivia question of the episode, which is where does he rank all time? in scoring through an age 24 season.
2: Are we talking about total points or points per total game? Points. Total, total points. Total points. Two? He's actually number nine. I, I thought it was going to be something ridiculous. that it was Because I remember I, when I would do those like searches, it would turn up like just Andrew Wiggins and LeBron James have average this so yeah
1: it's it's definitely a a modern thing just entering the the league at a younger age and having those immediate roles and you know the fast-paced nature of today's game and all that but the top 10 is interesting and the reason i wanted to ask that specific trivia question is also to highlight how empty those those points are so the top 10 the top 10 in scoring through an age 24 season lebron james kevin durant carmelo anthony Kobe Bryant, Tracy McGrady, Anthony Davis, Shaquille O'Neal. The outlier here is Bob McAdoo, because he actually did this in the 70s. Then Wiggins, then Giannis Antetokounmpo. Now, if we sort those 10 by win shares through their age 24 season, and again, with the caveat that win shares are by no means a perfect stat, but it does at least provide the baseline we're looking for here. Ready for this? LeBron, 84.8. Kevin Durant, 69.4. Kobe Bryant, 62.8. Anthony Davis, 62.5. Tracy McGrady, 60.1. Shaquille O'Neal, 56.3. Giannis, 53.2. Bob McAdoo, 49.2. Mello, 40.8. Wiggins, 15.
2: <laughs> That's so bad.
1: Doesn't that just about say it all here?
2: There's... I, I think you can make the case that, yo, know, he played on some, some rough versions of the Timberwolves, but that is that's a pretty but, huge discrepancy because like they won 16 games his his first year there. I believe uh, that was Wiggins first season. Yeah. So I, I get that the team was rough, but then that just really speaks to his inability to elevate even when he is playing well, is he elevating that or scoring at all? Is he elevating the the players around him? And, and the answer is probably with the exception of the beginning of his season. No.
1: The other Wiggins stat that I really like is, you know, I, I feel like every night, when he plays, you can check the box score and see a gaudy point total with nothing else. So I, I was curious uh, how many times he's had 20-plus points with no more than one rebound or assist. And he's actually only done it seven times, which surprises me. Um, the all-time leader is Kiki Vandeweghe, who has done it 30 times, followed by Reggie Miller at 29 and Jeff Malone at 28. So he's still got a long way to go in that category, and I hope he never gets there. Because if he doesn't, that will be a good indication for positive development in Golden State. But I also Mm. feel like we spent enough time talking about Andrew Wiggins. So I'm going to move us on to number three, um, which is Ricky Rubio. Number four for the fans, number three for both you and I. I don't know if I view Ricky Rubio's time with the Wolves as a success or not. It seemed like he was going to be much more than he became, just as the teenage superstar playing in Spain, the fifth overall pick of the 2009 draft. And he just, he, he didn't develop the scoring chops that we might've hoped that he was going to shot under 40% from the field in each of his first five seasons never became still hasn't become a consistent three point shooter. Even if he's progressed enough to at least draw some defensive attention since he's moved on from the Timberwolves with the jazz and the Suns. but just a phenomenal passer who has consistently had some of the best vision in the NBA. I've always been particularly impressed by his ability to rack up assists while making tough passes and not turning the ball over. He tries things that other players aren't willing to try, but they're very much within his skill set, and it allows him to kind of push the boundaries of what of the kind of passes that point guards make, and that's been that way since day one of his NBA tenure.
2: Yeah, when you can watch some of the passes that he makes, the way he sees the floor is just ridiculous. There's always the knocks where what if he was more, even at a super low volume, just consistent shooter, set shooter to where defenses wouldn't leave him completely alone. And even when he's, he always feels like he has this stretch, maybe at the end of the season where he's shooting like between 36 and 40% on these standstill threes, but it never really seems to last. I I thought it was interesting how anti-Ricky Rubio Tom Thibodeau actually seemed. And I'm not sure what it was about his game that, that earthed Thibodeau. Uh, he didn't play with the Bulls. That's, that's true too. And look, the, he does have a case of needs to look for his own shot more. And I think he's gotten better at that. Uh, when you look at some of his, his time in Utah and then with, with Phoenix as well. And you have to appreciate he's just wily on, on the defensive end. This is someone who, you know, you're not going to say that he is in all, an all defense candidate every single season, but he's going to be give you just above average stopping power at the point guard position, which does that mean a ton to people uh, because point guards are just going to score and get theirs anyway, who, who really knows, but uh, he's just so active on his hands are, are really everywhere. And he's such a, he seems like such a cerebral player, which has always sort of boggled my mind then that he wasn't a better just score just because he is so smart. His finishes at the rim seem more difficult than they need to be. And then, again, just the passiveness, not even with which he passes up open threes, but with which it seems like he just ignores these open lanes to the basket uh, is always a fair knock against him, I think. And I I do think you, you typified it at the top is what do you view his time in Minnesota as? To me, he's very clearly the third best player for them of the decade, but there's also just a level of Potential unfulfilled here that you wouldn't expect to see. We're not going to see it really from the top two, uh, but we see it here from from uh, the the third place guy. And you know, picked fifth overall. Like, forget about the two thousand nine NBA draft itself because there are players that would have gone in front of him. But it's one of those cases where has he provided the value of an average number five, top five pick? Probably. I I think he's there. It's like the the Marvin
1: Williams conundrum type deal. Exactly. Exactly. I also think that it's nice that uh, a guy who, for his career, has only scored 11.3 points per game, kind of has a signature shot too. You know, I when you think of Ricky Rubio's scoring ability, if I'm allowed to use that word here, it, there's like some Manu Ginobili to his game, some Tony Parker to his game, where he he's really good at those off-rhythm attacks where he'll go up off the wrong foot or he'll go a slight beat earlier than you expected and make a scoop layup. Like that's just. That's the shot that I, I I see with with him, where it's, you know, he's going to get to the basket and manage to score through traffic because his rhythm is just slightly different. And it, it makes sense because as a great passer, he is someone who can control the rhythm of the half-court set.
2: My all-time favorite Ricky Rubio moment is when he told Alexei to to change his face. Be happy. And- that should be the number one moment in Ricky Rubio's career. I also love the when they made the Timberwolves made the 90210 style hype video after they traded Kevin Love and they had Thaddeus Young and Wiggins and Anthony Bennett and Rubio and I think Levine on that team. That was if you've never seen that, you should go back and look. It was there's a very dreamy shot of Ricky Rubio in that video. I highly suggest everyone watches it.
1: The other Ricky Rubio mo- moment that that demands mention, I think, is you know he. The first couple of years in the NBA, he was the the baby-faced, clean-cut point guard. And then I, I forget which offseason it was, but he just kind of showed up with like a full beard and the ponytail. And it was like, okay, this looks way different now.
2: Do yeah. you remember that? Yeah, I do. And then just like he was basically – he did like the Captain America aesthetic heel turn where it was – he was kind of all clean cut. And then all of a sudden, you know, we get to – infinity war or was that like he's just like he's got the, the super super duper thick beard and had grown his his hair out and so that's always what i liken it to
1: that's 100 percent fair and i just i wonder what his uh his picking up the hammer moment is going to be oh it, it's yet to come is what you're saying it, it must be It definitely hasn't happened yet
2: <laughs> can you take us to number two which i think these spots will not be a mystery
1: feel like we need to approach these top two together. Let's do it. So Kevin Love was second across the board and Carl Anthony Towns was first across the board. Um, when I was filling out my ballot, I thought it was going to be a tougher decision than it was because Kevin Love almost unquestionably has the highest peak with Minnesota. Um, that 2010, 11, 2011, 12, stretch where he led the league in rebounding in the first season and then averaged a ridiculously efficient 26 points per game in the second um, and was on pace to to at least challenge Kevin Garnett as the best player in franchise history. But when you look at the amount of time that they've spent with the franchise, I think that's where the separation starts. I mean, it, it feels like Love spent so much time in Minnesota, but it was only six seasons. And the first two of those don't even count for us in this particular exercise. So Towns, who is a, a generational and all-time offensive talent at the five, is second in minutes played for the decade, 12,307. Love is down at fifth with only 8,171. And the fairness factor, even if they're fairly similar in terms of, of skill level, made this an easy decision, I thought. the
2: I think it was an easy decision too, and there's – a set, Kevin Love, definitely a better passer than Carl Anthony Towns, but Carl Anthony Towns overall on offense blurs the lines between the way a wing and a big plays in ways that Kevin Love never did because Carl Anthony Towns can really like just get moving off the dribble. And so I, I think that coupled with you know two of Kevin Love's seasons are excluded, but they're also they're probably the, the least impactful seasons of his career. Maybe that helps out. Uh, Towns just seems almost like he's become underrated nationally where Kevin Love never, it almost felt like he became this sympathetic figure nationally because the Wolves were just never good enough to get him to the playoffs. Whereas his towns, it's just the focus on his bad defense, which, you know, he's had like good moments, but unless you have two good or really good defenders in front of him, it just feels like he can't be um, your primary back line of defense everyone seems to zero in on that criticism. And I don't know if that just says more about what the expectations were for him coming out of Kentucky. And so that also made this uh, an easy decision for me. The one thing I will say about, or quick couple things about Kevin Love, uh, it was good to kind of see a renaissance for his passing this year, which doesn't factor into our rankings because it, it feels like people forgot how good of a passer he actually was. And then 2013, 2014, Kevin Love, that is one of the best offensive NBA seasons in, in history. Uh, I 26.1 points, 4.4 assists, shooting 37.6% on 6.6 three-point attempts per game. Uh, just the one of two times that he shot over 50% um, from two in his career, the other time actually being this season. And you just kind of look at the types of shots he was taking there, the work that he could do out of the post, the, the attention that he was getting from defenses. If you want to knock him a little bit because on the perimeter he wasn't hitting these unassisted jumpers, that's just – that feels more not, – it's not the nature of his role. It's also just the nature of of his position. Even Carl Anthony Towns is going to get a ton of assisted looks. He just has a more uh, mobility off the dribble than Kevin Love did. And so I do think this was an easy decision, but I also just want to highlight how ridiculously good Kevin Love was while he was in Minnesota.
1: If 2014-15 hadn't happened, I think that there's far more of a debate about whether he belongs – or sorry, if uh, 2012-13 – I was looking at the wrong line there – hadn't happened, I think there's far more of a debate about whether he belongs in the number one spot because that was the year that he he fractured his shooting hand before the season started, came back five weeks later, couldn't shoot. I mean 35.2% from the field, 21.7% from three-point range, fractured it again. And it ended up sitting out and only playing 18 games. It's impressive that he followed that up with that 2013-14 masterpiece. But had he been able to stay healthy and and not allow for that lapse between the 2011-12 season and the 2013-14 season and had four straight years of fringe MVP caliber play, then I think we have a discussion.
2: Or did they make the playoffs in at least one of those years? You know, 2013, 2014 seems like the biggest mi- missed opportunity, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, I would have been interested to see that 2012-2013 team with him where you had Andre Karolenko for, for most of the year. That would have been interesting. And, you know, you peak Peck at that point. And your boy Ridenauer, don't forget about him, had a good season that, that year. So uh, maybe there's, like, kind of missed out expectations there because of the, the injuries that he suffered, but had he been the one to end the playoff drought instead of Jimmy Butler and we're kind of looking at him in that, in that vein, I wonder if that would have helped him out at all.
1: Right. I mean, they won 31 games during that season that he basically missed, um, which did leave them pretty far outside the playoff picture. It took, uh, it took 45 wins to get in that year. I'm not sure that he alone would have been worth 14 wins. Um, but mean, it would have been
2: close. You also had Ricky Rubio only played in 57 games that year. There's yeah. a lot of other context that goes into it. But if if you're winning 31 games and Kevin Love only plays in 18 and then effectively Nikola Pekovic is your leading scorer, then you're playing a completely different way if that's if that's how the offense shifted. So I don't, I don't think it would have been, but I would have liked to have seen him on that team.
1: Agreed. And yeah, even if he did stay healthy and continued playing at such a high level, it it is tough to catch Towns here because... Again, like just a generational offensive talent, and it, I during the the all time one on one tournament that we did at NBA Math, I was consistently getting frustrated with people who questioned why Towns was still winning matchups and beating these Hall of Fame big men against whom he was he was matched, and it's like no, that's that's pretty valid. I mean, how are you going to stop him from scoring in a one on one setting? This is a guy who can put the ball on the floor far better than almost any five in NBA history. It's a guy who can create his own step-back three-pointers and make them. A guy who can dazzle you in the post. Um, he's he's the complete offensive package.
2: Yeah, he he is, I don't know if I would say he's underrated, but I think there's far you'll get far more pushback if you say Carl Anthony Towns is a top 10 player right now. And this season specifically, just because of the injuries, no. But if you say Connelly Towns is a top 10 player, you're going to get way more pushback than I think that you should. I think that's a
1: great way to put it.
2: Yeah, it's, it's probably the best way to put it. Are you ready so that we can keep this under an hour? I'd just like to remind everyone, what other podcasts are spending basically an hour to single teams? Just... Throwing that out there if you want to rate, review, and subscribe to us wherever you get your podcast. Anyway, do you want to take us through the honorable mentions for the Timberwolves?
1: I would love to. So at number 11, we had Taj Gibson. And these are the honorable mentions for the fan vote only, just to make that clear, since Dan and I only go 10 deep on these. Uh, 11 is Taj Gibson. 12 is D'Angelo Russell. 13 is a tie between Jeff Teague and Robert Covington, which feels both weird and appropriate. Uh, 15 is another weird but appropriate tie between Corey Brewer and Kevin Garnett. 17 is Tyus Jones, 18 a tie between Anthony Tolliver and Luke Ridnour. 20 is a tie between Alexei Shved and Michael Beasley, 22 a tie between Andre Kirilenko and Jarrett Culver, 24 is a three-way tie between Al Jefferson, Josh Akogi, and Johnny Flynn, and then 27 is a bigger tie between Luol Deng, Malik Beasley, Nemanja Bialitsa, Ronnie Turiaf, and Sam Cassell, 32 is Robbie Hummel and Wayne Ellington, and 34 is J.J. Barea and Nas Reed. I'm tempted to not even include J.J. Barea because as we've established in previous podcasts, his time with the Minnesota Timberwolves
2: never happened. He has only ever played for the Dallas Mavericks. Uh, Respect to someone voting for Al Jefferson, even though he doesn't have a single season with the Timberwolves, that falls under this purview. I guess he was at least there in the year 2010 because of uh, 2009-2010, but... Shout out to him and shout out to the the Jared Culver believer. Just throwing him in there as an honorable mention at all. Really rough rookie season for him, even though his offensive efficiency picked up and I still believe in him as, as a defender. So those were some interesting names. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. We will be back next time with this series. We'll be on to... The New Orleans Pelicans, again, we're closing in on the the 20th team. And then after the New Orleans Pelicans, we will go right to the Oklahoma City Thunder uh, because that is definitely the the natural progression of teams in the NBA going alphabetically. Until next time, on behalf of myself and Adam, I leave you with a shout out to the one, the only, NBA champion and Wolves legend, Ronnie Turriot.